If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 25. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 25. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's uh, page 978, I believe. The text is also printed on the inside cover of the bulletin there. Ephesians 4, 17 through 25, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, since the reading of God's word, grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask him now to add his blessings to it. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, we come to you and we ask that you would be with us, that you would give us ears that can hear, eyes that can see, hearts that are ready to respond to all that you have to say to us, your people. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Emperor's New Clothes is a story of pride, hubris, and an emperor who literally parades through the streets in his underwear. What if I told you that Christians are in danger of looking just as foolish? of not wearing the magnificent clothes that Jesus has purchased for us with His own precious blood. Is that what we want? To be found naked when you could be wearing a ravishing dress by Oscar de la Renta or the finest suit by Ralph Lauren. Christ our King has purchased for us even better clothes than that. Fine linen, white and pure, because the bride will wear white whether she deserves it or not. See Revelation 19 for the details, but that's the very end of history. What about right now? Well, the emperor's new clothes, of course, were actually no clothes at all. Joke was on him. What about the Christian's new clothes? Well, they're real, but not clothes. They're character qualities. But if we don't want to look naked, we actually have to put them on. We have to clothe ourselves in the clothes that Christ has purchased for us. Today, the next few weeks, we see the Christian's new clothes. We see how to put off what Christ has conquered, how to put on what he has gifted to build up the body that Christ bought through truth and love. And don't, don't miss this. Christ has already bought, redeemed the body. He's redeemed us. And he's already bought these new clothes. Wouldn't it be a shame to leave them in the closet to simply walk around naked? So the first thing we see this morning is our calling to walk as Christians. Our calling to walk as Christians in verses 17 through 21. Now before we 
dive in. It's good to have a roadmap. Why are we talking about Christians calling, walking, new clothes? Because Ephesians 1 through 3, it describes our calling, doesn't it? How God called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. How he planned it before the foundation of the world in chapter 1. How he plumbed the depths of our depravity in chapter 2, saving us by grace even when we were dead in sins and transgressions. And how he also put us into one mysterious new body called the church. Jew and Gentile together and not just Jew and Gentile, you might say, but ultimately every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's chapters 2 and 3. And then once God describes this grand mystery, then we get to chapter 4 where he tells us how to walk worthy of our calling. It's as if he says, you've been redeemed by me, your master. Here's what your new life looks like. The theme of Ephesians is the church glorious. And chapter 4 is how to walk worthy of our glorious calling. And in verses 1 through 16, what we've already covered, it focuses on unity with a secondary focus on purity. And now in verse 17, those flip. Primary focus is on purity, secondarily on unity. He focuses, you might say, on the pure and holy character that is essential to our unity. And that brings us to verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. <clears throat> you don't walk this way anymore. You can't. He starts, as he does in verse 1, with the, the appeal to his apostolic authority. That authority is all throughout Scripture, of course, but Paul is underlining his point here. He's got something important to say. You don't walk this way anymore. Not like the Gentiles. That's more a religious statement than a racial or an ethnic one. He's using Gentile to describe the average person outside the people of God, as well as the natural progression of their way of life. He's not saying every Christian, every, excuse me, that every non-Christian will look just like this, but this is where their life will logically lead. It's the wide road that leads to destruction. It's similar to what Psalm 1 talks about. If you don't walk according to the counsel of the wicked, you won't Stand among them in a more settled way. Neither will you sit among the scoffers, scoffing at the things of God. And now none of that means don't have any non-Christian friends. It does mean that your way of life should be determined by God's word, not by them. And it does mean we should guard ourselves, pray for his protection, even as we seek to share the good news with non-Christians. But, but overall, walk like a Christian, he says, not like the world. Why is that? Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Verse 19, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. John Stott says that last phrase of verse 18, it's actually the first step in the progression here. Hardness of heart. Think about it. It says, in verse 18, because of their ignorance, which is due to their Hardness of heart. They have hard hearts, not open to God's truth, not needing God's help. I, I'm fine. I can handle this. And that functional atheism leads in some order to these other things. Ignorance. Now, it's a lack of knowledge about the things of God. That is not always an insult. and Some people might think it is. This is a willful ignorance. It's important to realize, right? It's I don't know God because I don't want to know him. I don't want anyone else to be Lord over me. 
What does that look like? Maybe it looks like it's just me and Jesus. Nobody can tell me what to do. I don't need the church, regardless of what His Word says. Maybe it looks like just me, my way. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. How'd that work out for Elsa? Those of you who don't get the movie reference, obviously don't have young kids. That's fine. But nonetheless... The Gentiles, it says, they walk in hardness of heart, leading to willful ignorance. They're, and they're darkened in their understanding because they can only see life on the surface level. Can't see the cosmic battle between good and evil, between the serpent and the Savior. And because of their hard hearts that are ignorant, that are in the dark, it says next, they're, they're alienated from the life of God. Not only that, they're, they're callous in their understanding. Unable to empathize properly. Couldn't help but think about this. I said, is this why, for example, voters in the state of Colorado were more ready to support and protect wolves a few elections ago instead of unborn children? But this callous understanding, it also leads to sensuality. That's the, one of the last words in the series here. Sensuality. What is that? It's whatever makes me happy. Whatever makes my senses happy. That might be rampant sexual immorality, or it might be consumerism, retail therapy, the middle-class prosperity gospel, you know, that says, obviously, Bentleys and Lamborghinis, those are a bit extravagant, but we still expect a comfortable middle-class life because we're obedient, we're, we're good people. Doesn't God owe us, in a sense? All of this adds up to a life that's greedy for every kind of impurity. This is where a godless life will lead us if we let it, if we walk in it. But again, Paul says, verse 17, you must not walk this way anymore. And after telling you what that life looks like, he comes back in verse 20 and says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. It's as if he says, was Christ self-centered? Did he seek his own pleasure and his own comfort? Is that how he walked among us? Verse 21 Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, it's a, it's a bit of a hint hint here from him, isn't it? Hey, are you living like a Christian? If not, have you actually heard of Christ? Have you been taught in him? Do you know the truth of Christ, the one who died for your sins, lived for your righteousness, the one who calls us to walk as he walked? Be salt and light, the shining city on a hill, Because this is how we're called to walk, as Christ walked, not as the Gentiles walk. Now, of course, there's one way that Christ walked that I can't repeat, that I'm not called to repeat. Christ walked to Calvary for us, didn't he? He bore our sin. He bore our shame. He died for it. He was executed for it. Now, on the one hand, all Christians are called to bear our cross daily, and some will literally die for their faith. Many have over the years. Doesn't mean all of us will, but many have. Peter, for example, died on a cross upside down, legend has it, by his request, because he wasn't worthy to die like his Savior. But gruesome as that was for for Peter, none of us are called to bear the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Christ walked to Calvary, not simply to face death on a cross, as bad as that was. He faced the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. 
might say Christ killed our sin by being killed for it. A hymn says our sin, it was nailed to the cross. We bear it no more. No more guilt, no more punishment. And yet we know sin is a nasty disease that still clings to us after we come to Christ on this side of heaven. And we're called to kill it too, aren't we? Famous words of John Owen that you'll probably hear a lot in the next few weeks. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. How do Christians walk? We walk in purity. Purity involves killing impurity. Killing sin. Christ killed our sin. And so should we. And I promise it will be less painful for us than it was for him. It's our calling to walk as Christians. Next we see our calling to dress as Christians. Our calling to dress as Christians in verses 22 through 24. He changes metaphors here, right? Instead of walking, now we're talking about dressing, putting off, putting on. Verse 22, verse 24, that's a metaphor for getting dressed. That's the language of getting dressed. Now to review, verse 20 and 21 talks about how we learn Christ. We learn knowledge that translates to action. How we dress, how we act. We learned, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You had an old self, a former life. But for some, maybe there's a clear end and a new beginning. For some, maybe not. If you're in Christ, this is true of you, whether you realize the line of demarcation or not. But if you don't know that line of demarcation... You don't know a time when you didn't know Jesus is your Savior, then, then, then praise the Lord for that. But I would also say, if that describes you, think of your old self the way I once heard a minister describe his old self. He said, God saved me from a life of addiction and sexual immorality and more. He saved me from that life by calling me to himself in an early age so that I never knew a time when I didn't know Jesus is my Savior. What's his point? That's what I would have been, would be, without his grace. And now how do we respond? We, we put off that life. Whether we know it experientially or whether we know it in principle, theoretically, like that guy described. We put off that life. We don't wear those clothes. We won't think or live like that. I remember my High school soccer coach is a godly man named Tyrone. He told us about a lady in his church. She, he said, used to be a prostitute. Then she found Christ. And afterwards, there were certain types of clothes she wouldn't wear. And I don't mean the obvious trashy type of clothes you wouldn't want your daughter to wear. I, I forget the specifics, frankly, whether it was pants, short skirts, whatever. But it was her specific application of, lead me not into temptation. So I would ask you, what is your pet sin that you must flee from? Because the old self that we put off, it's corrupt through deceitful desires. It's why we need, for example, external accountability. Why we can't just trust our hearts. Go where our hearts lead us. Now, the heart is not unimportant. From it flows the wellspring of life, Proverbs says. The conscience, it's not unimportant. But the conscience, the heart, they need to be instructed. Because what does Jeremiah 17 verse 9 say? The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need other people. We need the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. 
if we're going to put off the old self. Christ teaches us this. He also teaches us, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This seems like both a transition and a summary. Putting off and putting on, it's like being renewed comprehensively. And after we put off the old, verse 24 reminds us we also have been taught to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Christ taught us to put on the new self. And if you look at, a, if you look at Colossians 3.10, a parallel passage, it talks about being renewed in the image of our Creator. Putting on the new self, it's, it's being renewed in the image of God in which we were created. Now, this renewal, this restoration, it's imperfect in this life, right? But it's new. As Hokema says, we are not fully new, but we are genuinely new. Because we're not fully new, we have to keep putting on these clothes. We have to keep getting dressed in the image of God. You might remember we talked in Sunday school in a sermon on Genesis 1 a few weeks ago. We, we uh, talked about living out the image of God. We do that in three ways, borrowing these from Kevin DeYoung. We, we live in relationship with God. We represent His authority over creation. And we reflect His righteousness or His character. In other words, we represent His authority, His righteousness, His holiness. And His character, His righteousness, also includes His goodness, doesn't it? You see, we do this not only by living a holy life according to His commandments, but we also do it by living a gospel-centered life, a life of proclamation, speaking of the good news that saved a wretch like me. Now, there are many ways to evangelize, but I think of the words of D. James Kennedy, who, when he was alive, said, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way you don't. In other words... We get so caught up in criticizing the different methods that maybe we forget to do it all together. Maybe you specialize in hospitality. Maybe you're a pure evangelist, preacher, a teacher, what have you. Maybe you want to help out the greeting team. But either way, we're called to put on Christian clothes, to be renewed in God's image, to reflect His righteousness and His good news. But again, we, we have to put those clothes on. The emperor's new clothes, they, they weren't really clothes, right? He was fooled. Someone appealed to his vanity. They said, these new clothes, O emperor, they, they, they will be invisible to the stupid and the incompetent. And when they pretended to dress him in them, the emperor couldn't admit that he couldn't see them. The clothes that weren't really clothes at all. We, we do have new clothes. But if we aren't wearing them, then we'll look just as naked in the public square. What I'm trying to say is there will always be professing Christians who give Christians a bad name. They don't live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. They don't walk in the character and the way that God tells us to. There will always be professing Christians like that. I just don't want to be one of them. How about you? I don't know if you're supposed to amen or say no or what there, but... The problem with the Christian's new clothes is not that they're invisible or fake or non-existent. The problem with the Christian's new clothes is that we don't always put them on. We don't always get dressed. We pretend we're back in 2020 that the meeting is on Zoom and nobody's going to notice if I'm just wearing shorts 
or boxers or whatever. Why should we want to put on these new clothes? Because what good are they if we don't put them on? Because Christ, my Savior, has already got dressed in my old clothes, hasn't he? He's already put on my sin and my shame. He became sin for us. Not that he sinned, but that he paid the penalty for sin so that we might become his righteousness, so that we might be clothed in righteousness divine, so that when God the Father looks at me, he sees not the sin I still struggle against, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ clothing me, covering all my sin and my shame. As Martin Luther said, we're simultaneously sinful and justified, sinful in reality, but justified, not guilty in God's sight. And that freedom motivates us to get dressed, to act the way that he sees us. He's given us new clothes. Not very useful if we don't put them on. We're called to dress as a Christian because Christ got dressed in my sin so that he could give me better clothes. Now, the last thing we see thirdly, finally, briefly, is our calling to speak as Christians. See this in verse 25. We don't walk like godless people. We put off that life, those clothes, we put on different clothes. And one of the Christian's new clothes is proper speech or truthful speech. You see it in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Put off, put on, here's why. That's the formula that we'll see going forward. You see it in the verses we've already covered, and I could have stopped there, but I wanted us to see one specific example of what this looks like. And notice the way verse 25 is written, having put away falsehood. It's, it's past tense. Paul is assuming that a decisive once-for-all shift has occurred in our lives, that we have been positionally sanctified so that we might be enabled by the Spirit to be progressively sanctified, more and more like Jesus. So having done this, he says, speak truth. And why? For we are members one of another. All society is based on trust. It stands the reason that lies, untruth, deception, spin will tear a society apart. And furthermore, our God who made us members one of another, our God is truth. He's always truthful with his people. So we should be too. He's entrusted us with truth. Why should we withhold it from others? Both the truth of the gospel and the truths about ourselves. As we've said in the past few weeks, we can speak truth to our neighbors. We can still do it in love. Even if we think we need to be delicate with somebody's feelings. Even if we think they may not be able to hear it. We can still speak nothing untrue to them. You know, their performance at some event may not have been very good. But that doesn't mean the words, oh, it could have been better. Or I loved it, are necessarily untrue, right? Every piece of artwork by your three-year-old is not necessarily the next Picasso. But that doesn't mean you don't love it, right? For two weeks, God has been telling us, the truth in love builds up the body of Christ. So why should we withhold it? What right do we have? Maybe we're afraid. Oh, they won't hear it well. How are they going to respond? Will they, they hurt me? Will they, they lash out at me as a result? When we should be asking, can God care for me even if others respond poorly to the truth? 
If God says truth in love builds up, are we trying to outsmart God by avoiding it? If we trust him, the truth in love builds up the body of Christ. If we want to love the church, if we want to grow in truth and in love, then shouldn't we be asking ourselves, what does truth in love look like for the next hard conversation that I need to have? Christians are people of truth. If we don't live this way, we shouldn't be surprised if some of our friends and neighbors doubt the truthfulness of God's Word. Maybe that's you this morning. If so, I'm glad you're here. I'd I'd recommend a video our youth group watched recently. It's by a guy named Daniel Wallace about the trustworthiness of the New Testament. He He's someone who debates atheists, talks to college students, writes seminary textbooks, but tries to explain answers to common objections. And those questions are okay to ask. But we should also be intellectually honest. We should listen to answers as well as asking questions. And I admit I can't address every doubt about Scripture right now. But I can tell you briefly why you can trust Christ. Because he spoke the truth and lived the truth, even when it hurt him. Psalm 15 talks about a holy man being one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Someone who promises, swears to do something, and he still does it, even when it's going to cost him, maybe more than he realized. Now one, that's a lesson to not swear rashly before we've thought things through. But secondly, I think it's a wake-up call for us because we don't naturally do that, do we? Always. Oh, we look for a way out when it gets hard. But not Christ. He promised that He would walk the road to Jerusalem, to Calvary. And He knew what that involved. And even when the penalties and the punishments that He didn't deserve were hanging over His head, He didn't flinch, right? He kept going. You think of how we would have handled ourselves in that circumstance. You think of how Peter did handle himself. He got scared when people asked him if he knew Jesus. And he lied through his teeth to save his skin, but not Christ. He swore to his own hurt. He kept his word, even when it hurt him, so that you and I could experience true redemption and true freedom. Christ is our truth who spoke the truth always, who kept his word always. And aren't we grateful that he did? And now Christ calls us to be people of truth, to get get dressed in the Christian's new clothes, which include truth. He purchased new clothes for us. Now let's put them on because we're members one of another. And by putting on new clothes, especially the clothes of truth and love, we will build each other up as the body of Christ. A unified body, a purified body. The body of Christ that Christ bought. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You are not your own, you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And Isn't that true for all of us? That if we each glorify God with our bodies, with our walk, with our clothes, with our speech, that we'll begin to see the body built up more and more. That we'll see the church being the church in all of her glory. Praise God that is already happening. We pray it would happen more and more. Please pray with me. Oh God, our God, we come to you admitting that you're calling. It's a high calling. If 
we're honest with ourselves. It's one we can't do on our own. And so, Father, as we strive for it, would you keep us close to the cross? Would you remind us that in all the ways that we fall short, Christ did not. He obeyed and he obeyed perfectly. And he did so in my place that I might die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. Help us to do that, we pray. In the power of Jesus' name, amen.